You're listening to Tune Into Talent, the show that talks about the ever-evolving landscape of talent needs, exploring strategies and insights that drive innovation and growth. From hiring the brightest minds to nurturing exceptional teams, we're here to talk about how to unlock the full potential of your organization. Welcome to Tune Into Talent. I'm Ted Kinney, Vice President of Research and Development with Talogy. I'm joined today by Mavis Kung, the Senior Director of Research and Development at Talogy, and Alana Harrington, a Senior Research Consultant. Um, all three, all, all three of us are members of the R&D team uh, at Talogy, and we're excited today to to talk about emerging trends in, in talent assessment. Uh, this is a topic that's near and dear to all three of our hearts. Uh, emerging trends in this space is something that we talk about all of the time. Um, and we see trends hitting our landscape all of the time. Uh, and we, we find that as these trends come up, uh, some of them lead to fantastic innovations that change the way that we assess people that lead to uh, wonderful breakthroughs in our science, while others fizz fizzle out and die an unceremonious death. And, uh, you know, they, they uh, generate a lot of interest at the start, but then just sort of fade away and are less useful. So one of the things that we like to do in R&D is talk about these trends and think about the value of each. Think about which one is actually an important development, something that's going to add to the science, and then try to understand which ones are, are going to fall into the latter bucket. And so when we think about these emerging, emerging trends, we tend to think about them through a few different lenses. We like to think about whether or not the trend is going to help us predict outcomes of interest for our clients. Is the trend going to help us assess candidates more fairly? Will the trend uh, help us process candidates more efficiently. Uh, so we tend to think about these challenges that our, our clients face, and we think about how those trends can apply. And so uh, when we think about our trends, we usually sort of think, you know, about them from through the lens of accuracy, fairness, and engagement uh, for the participants that go through it. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about various trends, and we're going to think about how they might add value or not uh, from an accuracy, uh, fairness, and engagement perspective. Uh, also, when we think about trends in the talent space, we see trends that hit different types or different considerations to organizations. Uh, in general, we can bucket a lot of emerging trends into two overarching categories. Trends in how we think about work. So the job domain changes or how job designs shift over time. Uh, how people might be working differently today versus how they were before. We see a lot of trends in that area. We also see a lot of trends in the area of in, in or uh, innovations in technology or tools. So developments that impact the way that we measure people. Uh, I think a primary example, and we'll sure, I'm sure we'll talk about it more later in the podcast, uh, would be um, artificial intelligence. So there's a lot that's trending out there from both of these categories. And our purpose today is just going to be to roll up our sleeves and have a discussion about the various trends the three of us see 
um, talk about them, brainstorm about them, evaluate them, share experiences and stories about those trends, and just generally dive into what we're seeing in the, the landscape of, of, of talent measurement these days. So with that being said, um, let's start talking about some of these trends. We can start with maybe that first bucket or that first category of trends, thinking about how uh, the nature of work is dynamic and some of the trends that we're hearing about in that area. Um, so to, you know, give some, some others, Alana and Mavis, some airtime, I'll, I'll stop talking, but, uh, what Alana and Mavis, what sort of trends are you hearing about, thinking about, talking about in, in the, uh, dynamic nature of work category? Um, well, I think there's a lot of focus on how work has changed as a result of, you know, the rapid pace of technology um, and the emergence of AI as a key focus. Um, and then I think the other aspect that has kind of shifted how we think about work is, you know, the results of the pandemic, a greater focus on remote and hybrid work. And what does that mean in terms of the competencies that we need to be successful? Um, and when we think about future work competencies, you know, we're obviously trying to predict the future a little bit. We can't know for sure. So there's not always consensus, but some of the things that I've seen coming up again and again are things like digital dexterity, learning agility, resilience, a uh, greater focus on critical thinking and strategic thinking. Um, Mavis, can you think of any others that I see come up a lot? I think um, the thing that I coming to my mind is this emphasis on compassion and empathy and caring, especially given people just went through a pretty horrific experiences collectively. You know, having people that can really care about each other and supporting each other in a very tough environment and also in a virtual setting become increasingly important or at this become probably more prominent in, in the conversation now we hear as well. Yeah, I think there's, uh, there's no dispute that I think the way we think about working has shifted dramatically over the last few years, faster than at any point in, in my career, certainly. Um, you know, I think there's the pandemic that's led to it. But I think even some of these emerging technology trends like AI are changing it as well. You know, as we see uh, more applications of generative AI, it changes the way that we do work. Um, you know, and so people with uh, the competencies to leverage this emerging technology uh, have potentially stand an advantage in you know, the job designs of the future. So uh, there, you know, there are just real changes happening in the job domain, the real changes in how we work, how we think about work, how we define job performance, how we, um, you know, structure our roles. Um, and so that is definitely, I think, you know, an emerging trend that, and, and a practical reality that organizations face today. So what, so what? <laughs> so like, I mean, so I think that's an important question, right? So uh, like if you're designing a, a selection program or you're, you want to develop people in their roles, um, so, so the world of work's changed. What does that mean for organizations? 
I, I think this is go back to the fundamental of our understanding of what predict job performance. You know, it's kind of thinking about that in the the law of the physics. The fundamental hasn't really significantly changed, even though the task may be different, the type of work environment may be slightly different, the demand of the job may be different, but what makes someone can do their job really well and effectively hasn't changed significantly. Um, so thinking about, you know, go back to the fundamentals, you know, we are thinking about people who can work and self-regulate and then people who can work with others and also people who can, you know, take information and problem solve on a regular basis. So those are the key things that I think that hasn't significantly changed. So even though there is an emerging trend that we know there are some different competencies and different job domains and different characteristics of the job um, change, in, but fundamentally, the core set of the things that we're looking for or organizations should look for um, remain the same. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of like, uh, you know, the job has changed, but, you know, humans' DNA hasn't changed, right? The things that people vary on, the pe the traits that people have are still the same as they were 10 years ago or even 100 years ago, right? And uh, so while the jobs are changing, the attributes that people have have not changed. But so now, it, you know, if we can measure those attributes, we just have to think about you know, which of them are going to predict job performance in this new world of work. And I think that what 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 we find and what my opinion is that, you know, while we might weight things differently and we might, you know, group traits differently uh, to fit this new job design and this new model, fundamentally, people who work hard, people that have a positive attitude, people that solve problems, uh, were good at their jobs 10 years ago and they'll be good at their jobs 10 years from now. And, and so while the job design is changing and the way that we think about competencies is changing, um, good measures of stable job related individual difference characteristics are still, you know, useful today and they'll be useful tomorrow as well. Yeah. I think often with some of these newer competencies um we're often just putting a new label on old things like learning agility is probably some combination of cognitive ability motivation to learn flexibility we measure all of those things already we don't just don't necessarily mm -hmm. call it learning agility um i think digital dexterity is maybe a little fuzzier there's still some kind of definition work that needs to be done there so that we can be sure of what we're measuring and how we're measuring it but I think a lot of the things that apply for learning agility probably apply for digital dexterity too, except applied to a specific domain. Right. Yeah. And I think that really points out a problem with some of these trends as they emerge, right? So like digital dexterity, I think Alana, Mavis, you, the three of us would probably agree all day about the importance of it because we've talked about it and we have a shared definition of what digital dexterity is. Uh, but when you look across the landscape, there is no shared definition of it. Um, I do talk to clients about digital dexterity a fair amount. And I usually start that discussion by saying, you know, what does digital dexterity mean to you? Um, and, you know, I've asked it 
you know, 10 times and I've got 10 different answers, right? So um, when one of, as these trends and how we think about work emerge, that's one of the challenges. Like uh, you'll hear a catchy word or a catchy uh, competency or whatever it might be, uh, but then you'll apply your own understanding to it and uh, it can create some challenges in, in, in measuring the thing that actually matters for the job. So um, that's a challenge. Learning agility seems like, I mean, it's been around a little bit longer. There seems to be a little bit common understanding. It's been around for 20 years, but I think there's still not agreement on what it is. Right. Like some people right. would argue there's a cognitive component. Some people argue that cognitive yeah. ability shouldn't be part of it at all. And it mm -hmm. should only be personality aspects that you focus on. Yeah, so it takes yeah. a long time. <laughs> but yeah, it, I think though what you do see too is that regardless digital dexterity, learning agility or, or what have you, they are made up of attributes that matter. You know, so whatever collection, what you know, one definition might pull something in, you know, pull cognitive in, another definition might not. Uh, but what is in it tends to be important and predictive attributes that that do predict performance and matter. Mavis, I'm sorry, you're about to say something. Oh, um, I, I was just echoing what you both are saying. You're thinking about about 20 or 30 years ago, our client asked us, how can you measure in continuous improvement? To me, is essentially the fundamental things what learning agility is trying to get at, or resilience is trying to get at, or even digital theory, if you extending that idea. Um, because, you know, the workplace will continue to change, will continue to have new technologies, new tools to make the job easier or more complex in some times. And they need to find talents who can work continuously to improve uh, as a part of the process. So, so this is not a new concept at all, in my opinion. Uh, we have found a way to tapping into that um, and then you think about that as a cluster of traits or cluster of KSAOs, if you will. So essentially, we're just saying this, uh, the set of competencies and there were trying to, I think, important part of this is what Ted, you're saying, the definition problem, right? So when we're trying to measure something, it's a very important to us to understand what construct we're trying to measure um, and so and measure it really well. And also to be able to validate it. How can you validate something if you don't understand what it is? Right. You can't define it. You can't validate it. That's that's for sure. Uh, but I do think that uh, job designs have changed. They'll continue to change. And um, the collections or clusters, as you called it, Mavis, um, that, that, you know, fit together to predict performance in that changing nature of work uh, is going to continue to evolve. And there will be you know, a new competency du jour five years from now, and, and we'll be talking about that a lot then. Um, you know, another related trend um, that I hear a lot about uh, more recently is the concept of skills-based assessment. Um, I don't know, Alana, I know that when we chatted prior to the podcast, you had brought this one up. Uh, do you have any thoughts about skills-based hiring or skills-based assessment? Yeah, I think there's a lot of maybe confusion and misunderstanding around this one. I hear a lot of people 
talking about this as if skills are replacing competencies and we're moving away to a different direction. I don't think that's really what's meant by the concept of skills-based hiring. It is supposed to be more about moving away from things like past experience or educational background or referrals and focusing more on skills. I think you could use that interchangeably with competencies in my mind because it's a focus on both technical and hard skills and on soft skills. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think this is one of those places where um, IO psychologists like us tend to get in our own way, right? Because the, the way an IO psychologist defines a skill is, I think, different, different than what um, broader organizations are thinking about when they're referring to skills-based hiring or skills-based assessment. You know, to an IO psychologist, a skill is a specific thing, something like typing, where you know, you learn what the keyboard is, you practice it, you know, you start, you know, uh, using all of your fingers, you stop looking at the keyboard and over time your speed increases, you're gaining in that skill. Um, and that's how, how, you know, how 20 years ago when I was trained as an IO psychologist, that's how we thought about skills. And, and that's, that was what we were talking about. But to your point, Alana, this skills-based hiring uh, trend really seems to me to be focused on understanding the value of the types of personal characteristics or attributes that we've been saying for years and years matter for understanding job performance, right? And moving away from some of those traditional old school predictors, like where did somebody go to school or what, you know, what college did they go to or, you know, um, what job did they have last? Um, and the problem with those predictors are that if they work at all, it's because there's, they're just related to something, some attribute that does matter. It's not that, that, that education or that work experience is quote, causing job performance. Um, so, you know, they, they kind of, to the extent that they're correlated, it's not because they're, you know, causing job performance. It's just that they happen to have a correlation with something that actually does matter. Um, and, and so uh, they tend to not predict very well. And this is something we've seen in, in our IO research for years, that those types of biographical indicators just don't predict as well as other things. Um, and, and the other downside to them too is that um they can lead to um you know a, a less inclusive uh hiring program because it's based on who had the opportunities to go to certain colleges or get certain jobs and and so you might be missing out on some fantastic talent uh just because you're thinking about data uh that some of the folks in your candidate pool didn't have the opportunity to, 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 you know, do. Um, so I don't know, Mavis, any thoughts on, on that? I'm ranting. Um, I, another example coming to my, um, relate to when you're thinking about past experiences working in a specific role that we have found maybe 20 years ago, many 
uh, employer will say, you know what, it is super important. We have to acquire that and then become a hurdle. So, you know, for thinking about uh, maybe a manufacturing company, they want to have a startup. They will say to us, we need to find candidates that have an X number of manufacturing experiences to be able to eligible to proceed. Now, think about that in that context. Um, if you are creating a new role, uh, a new job that never exists, no one has ever had that experiences whatsoever, right? So this shift really reflecting there's a lot of new roles be, become created because the new economy, because the new technology that available. Also, it reflecting that those experiences are not the most essential, most um, highly predictive of the job performance. It's what comes with those. So using manufacturing uh, experiences as example, people know what to expect. They probably, you don't have to engage with them, provide a realistic job preview to know it is a very hard job. You have to induce um, uh, physical labor, standing on your feet every day. So they get an idea. So they are less likely to become dissatisfied and self-select out in the early 30 days. Right. So those are the type of things that we need to really thinking about in terms of identifying what are the skills or what are the components, uh, whether you call it KSAO, skills, competencies, traits, uh, cluster, collections of things that help people to become successful. I think it also means this kind of links to another trend of more internal mobility within organizations. People are going to start to look within their internal talent pools more and more for people with these skills um, because it might be hard to find them externally. Yeah, I, and I think, uh, you know, you were talking about manufacturing, Mavis. Uh, you, you see it across industries all of the time. I, I, I can think about, um, you know, some examples that I've seen in healthcare in, in particular where you see with healthcare selection systems that are designed almost entirely based on these old school predictors where, you know, jobs are decided almost exclusively based on where you've worked, what positions you've held in the past, where you got trained. Um, and, you know, I learned very early on that that was a, a barrier that we would have to break through uh, when helping hospitals hire people into critical roles. And I can think about one situation in particular where we were hiring nursing support into an emergency room, uh, into an ER environment. And uh, we had a problem where our assessment uh, was working fine and we were measuring those, um, you know, skills-based competencies that, that we're talking about. Um, but when the candidates would get to the interview, they were getting rejected at a very high rate. Um, and so I went to the client and we sat down and we audited their interviews and looked at their interview notes with all of the hiring managers. And what we found was if that candidate didn't work in healthcare, they were immediately rejected, no matter what their skills said they might be able to do. And our turning point with this client was we reviewed a, a particular candidate whose name was Dan, and uh, he was uh, a baker and he, he worked in a bake shop and uh, or bakery, not a bake shop, he worked at a bakery. And uh, if you think about the job and, and he, you know, clearly 
communicated this very well in the interview because the notes were so clear. But if you think about the job of a baker, you have to get to work super early in the morning and you have to be dependable because if you don't bake their goods that day, there's nothing for the bakery to sell. And he would get there first. He would open the shop. He would do all of the cooking. So it's him alone in the kitchen. He'd have to go to the mixer, go to the oven, lots of multitasking in a fast paced environment with the need to switch tasks under salient time pressures. And when I explained this to the hiring managers and we talked about it, uh, I said, I looked at them. I'm like, sounds kind of like an emergency room, doesn't it? And finally, it was the point where they broke through and they decided to hire Dan the Baker. And we followed up with Dan the Baker over the next couple of years, the client and I did. And he turned out to be a wonderful performer. He ended up going to graduate school and becoming a nurse. Um, and it was just an eye-opening experience that, you know, if you focus on skills that matter for the job as opposed to past experiences where somebody might have worked or the educational opportunities they might have had, you focus on those skills, it opens up a vast array of talent that you might have otherwise not considered. And in these days of low unemployment rates and hard to find candidates, you just can't afford not to focus on these skills-based uh, hiring approaches as opposed to those you know, more conventional, old school, less predictive, less fair approaches to hiring. So skills-based hiring, I, I give that one a thumbs up. I think it does lead to more accuracy. It does lead to more fairness. And frankly, it leads to a better candidate experience as well. So I'm all in on that one. I'm with you, Pat. Absolutely. I, I think um, and especially maybe just coming from my, my own personal bias in, in the sense, like as a woman that, you know, you probably take some time off um, during the childbearing years um, or during the pandemic, you take on the huge responsibility as the caretaker of the entire family. So there's a lot of people that may not have the experiences, mo mostly because they didn't have the opportunity as much um, by focusing on skill-based hiring. Um, you really broaden your candidate pool, uh, really focusing on the things that's important and create better opportunity for a lot of women as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think it will be an excellent thing for diversity and inclusion if it is taken up at IREAT. I think we've actually seen this um, in Canada recently where I'm based. Prior to this, there has been a lot of focus on prior experience in a Canadian workplace, specifically in hiring. Um, and obviously there's a huge amount of immigration to Canada yearly, and that presents a disadvantage to those people because there is no way for them to gain Canadian experience if it's a prerequisite for the job. Um, and recently, I think someone should probably fact check the, me on this, but I think that's been overturned now. You can't require Canadian experience anymore, which yeah. I think is a really positive step forward in line with this concept. Yeah, yeah. yeah we've seen some similar regulatory things in the U.S. Uh, that that have led to, I think, some positive change, like thinking about like the financial services industry. For example, you know, you hear about the series seven tests and some of these things that you need to do to get into financial jobs. And, and for years, there was this regulatory requirement that uh, you needed to have gotten a particular type of business degree at an accredited university to even be able to sit for these certification exams. Um, and 
uh, you know, when you looked at the requirements, it was just very clear that it was going to disadvantage, uh, you know, applicants or potential applicants from, you know, a lower socioeconomic status that didn't have those educational opportunities of, of uh, other you know, less disadvantaged groups. And uh, it was, I remember when uh, the SEC was thinking about making some changes here, uh, that it was like seen as shocking or threatening or concerning that we wouldn't be requiring certain degrees anymore. Uh, but when I looked at it, I'm like, yeah, you absolutely should do that because, uh, you know, you can study the content in the series seven. You can learn that if you're dedicated to doing it, regardless of the university you may or may not have gone through. And by opening the test up to groups that don't meet this rigid set of qualifications, uh, you're going to tap your, into a much greater degree of, or amount of talent from a, a much broader spectrum of the labor market. So, um, you know, you do see regulations shifting over time. Uh, in a good direction towards more skills-based uh, acceptance and less reliance on some of these older school predictors. So, yep, I think uh, it's a good trend. I, I'm fully in support of it. Um, maybe let's shift gears and, and think a little bit about some of the emerging technology trends or, or trends in um, how we measure people as opposed to how we design the job or, or think about organization. Um, to me, uh, the, the first trend that is top of mind that we seem to talk about with clients almost every single day is artificial intelligence, which can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But um, let's talk about artificial intelligence as an emerging trend for a little bit. Um, I, you know, when I think about artificial intelligence, it's just this broad bucket of stuff. And so we have to think a little bit about, um, you know, when we're talking about artificial intelligence, what are we really talking about? And to me, you know, I, I mean, I'm, 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 there are more expert people on the team than me, but I broadly think about them in three general areas. You know, there's natural language processing, there's machine learning, and there's generative AI. Those seem to be the three areas that clients bring up and think about the most. That's what I tend to, you know, hear discussed the most often. Um, to me, you know, machine learning, uh, for example, is, is, you know, interesting. To me, it represents a, a, a group of statistical techniques that we can leverage for a lot of useful purposes. Um, and, and there's a lot that we can do with it. Generative AI, this, this is, these are referring to things like chat GPT. Um, and it seems like generative AI is getting a lot more of the popular interests and discussion lately. And there's a lot of different applications for it. There are positive applications, you know, concerning riskier applications, but there's a lot going on in that space too. Um, but so if we think about, you know, that, that AI is more, it isn't a particular thing, but it's a group of different types of, uh, you know, emerging trends. Um, I think that's, you know, the first thing to consider that it's, it's, it's a complex and broad field, a broad set of emerging trends. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of potential for both machine learning and natural language processing to help us as test developers to develop more innovative, hopefully fair content. I think there's still a lot of nervousness or hesitation from clients that we've seen 
you know, we're not sure yet where legislation will go. There's been a few things that have been enacted, um, but a lack of clarity around them and what it means. Um, so I think we're also taking a fairly cautious approach, um, I would say, but we are using it in certain ways. You know, we have used natural language processing on crowdsourced responses to SGT questions to try and create more realistic response options for people. Um, at the moment, we're focusing on that more in the development space than in the selection space, because as I mentioned, you know, we are approaching this with caution until we understand the implications of it. Um, but yeah, I think there's huge potential there and so much more to come that we haven't even started with yet. Yeah, I think we just scratched the surface of the possibility what AI can do. Um, the team has been tinkering with so many different approach. I, I think, you know, we, we learn a few things along the way. Uh, for example, when we initially, we are start thinking about how can we apply natural language, um, processing in a way to assess things really the way that we're thinking about, you know, it got, gotta be job relevant. It got based on theory. It, be, it gotta have construct relevance, uh, evidence, but it is extremely hard. It is it really require a huge amount of data being collected first to go through that cycle of the rigorous scientific understanding before you can say this is a valid tool. So I think with any kind of a new way of looking at uh, whether it is machine learning, natural language. Uh, processing or generative AI from our wall, we, we really, really want to be careful is not only just thinking about, oh, there's the potential, but how can we do it scientifically, which means we need to be, um, there is a, going to be a trial and error process involved. And, and we will learn a few things when it's, it's working really well and when it's not really working well and refine that methodology over time. Yeah, and I don't, I don't want to, uh, you know, like under um, represent our experience with artificial intelligence because we've actually done a whole lot of it, right? From you know, natural language processing, AI scored video interviews to leveraging machine learning to uh, create, uh, you know, to well, using our technology to capture trace data and using machine learning to find construct relevant candidate behaviors that are not conventional item responses. So, so we've really done a lot, but I think what, you know, the, the sense that, uh, I'm getting from what the two of you are talking about is that, you know, the field is in its infancy to understanding, uh, what we can do with this new technology. And it's really pretty exciting. You know, we've seen a lot of positive outcomes from this, but a few of the lessons that I've learned as we've spent the last few years diving into artificial intelligence, um, applications, particularly around natural language processing and machine learning, is that number one, um, I work with a team of people that's ridiculously smart and much smarter than I am. And it's been amazing to watch our R&D colleagues teach themselves how to be data scientists and learn these concepts on their own because they've been just intrinsically interested in it and become real industry experts in the area. Number two, uh, so that's good, right? Like, I'm glad that I work with people like that um, that are more talented than I am. And then number two, I've learned that 
uh, old lesson taught to us by, you know, Kurt Levine years and years ago in, in our field that there's nothing so useful as a good theory. And the use of artificial intelligence does not discount the importance of theory. We're still scientists. We still are driven by theory. And we found that when we implement anything related to artificial intelligence, we still need to make sure that it's theory based. We still need to capture the same evidence of validity that we would with any assessment, AI based or not. Good science doesn't go away. And I think this is one of the real problems I've had with the artificial intelligence trend. Because the science is hard to do, we've seen artificial intelligence offerings on the market that just don't do it, that just don't go the extra step to document the scientific credibility of their tools. And I, I do urge clients all the time to make sure that you're evaluating AI tests, based tests across along the same, you know, criteria that you would any other assessment. The laws apply in the same way. The scientific standards apply in the same way. So that's, I think, one of the big learning points that I've had. And, and at, at Talogy, we said from the beginning that it, as we build AI-based predictors, we're going to do it in a scientifically responsible way. We're going to document construct validity. We're going to document criterion related validity, and we're not going to turn out solutions that are not good science. Um, so, so that's, you know, I think an important lens to look at this trend through there's AI, there are AI solutions that are out there that are not credible. And in my view, not defensible. But then there are other ones where you see scientists doing really good work and and building out solutions that are theory based and 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 you know documented well not just Vitalogy by other groups too so you know um, there there is good work being done but there's also a lot of snake oil out on the market mm -hmm. with this trend yeah and a lot less transparency I would say perhaps mm -hmm. under the guise of protecting IP or protecting algorithms I think that gives people kind of an excuse to not explain how the test was developed, which we need to understand. Right, right. And, you know, I, I, I've had this conversation a few times, like, would I rather have a da data scientist who learns a little bit about IO psychology or an IO psychologist that learns about data science, right? Mm -hmm. I would always rather have the latter, somebody that really understands the principles of assessments the compliance considerations where the test is going to be applied um, and really understands the practical realities of assessments in organizations. Because one of the things that you see is that in some of these shops that are you know, AI shops, building AI-based tools with no particular assessment experience, uh, they talk about things like bias in ways that the compliance standards don't. They talk about uh, concepts that uh, they feel or they think are, are related to validity, but they really aren't. And, and so when you look at it from a compliance or a legal perspective, uh, the tools that they're selling, uh, they, they'll, you, you'll hear a good game talked about compliance, uh, but they, when you really dig into the solution, um, where the rubber meets the road, it actually is, is not, sometimes not a particularly compliant solution. So I, I, I do worry about that. I think that it's important to carefully evaluate the scientific credibility of AI-based solutions. And, and Ted, to add to what you're saying here, like in the beginning of this podcast, we're talking about thinking through the lens of accuracy. 
um, and fairness and engagement, right? So in a lot of ways, I, I think um, because of the lack of transparency, uh, because the people who are building those technology applications does not fully understand the implications of the assessment and the decision being made, we run the risk of the bias in here and in that um, method. Um, and, and I'm not saying with assessments, um, you know, with experts that in the field of developing assessment can do it without the bias. I'm not saying that because inherently, if we are human, we, we make judgments, we have our own biases. But because of the acknowledgement of that, we are doing much better by trying ways to mitigate those bias in the beginning of the design of a, a assessment. And that's super important. And that's sometimes I, I feels the, the field have run away at this in the in the beginning, uh, run the rest of the pure empiricism, which is, you know, we, we see that in the uh, probably 30 years ago from biographical um, data is still very prominent. There, um, you know, people will find out, oh, you know, the number of books that you read from the library is a strong predictor of your success academically. Well, that's actually uh, confounded by, you know, the economic, social, uh, economic status of the neighborhood, right? So that is just a correlate, but a, not a strong predictor. Right. Or you'll find that it work that a item works in one sample, but it doesn't work in others. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of methodological challenges um, in, in some of the tools that we're seeing there. But we should talk a little bit about generative AI specifically, as this is the hot trend that that I find myself talking about with clients the most. I think it's also um, the application of AI that is driving a lot of the regulatory um, and ethical thinking around AI um, that we see about. And I think that one of the things that uh, I know I tend to get asked about by clients a lot is that with the, you know, the, uh, the, the proliferation or the ubiquitous use of, of generative AI, um, are candidates just now going to use it to cheat on assessments and are, are the assessments going to be uh, no longer of any value because people just use generative AI to answer tests? Uh, have either of you had discussions related to that with, with clients or Yeah, peers? I would say multiple times a day. And then also, yeah, curious. I've seen some bold claims on LinkedIn, you know, saying all of us will be out of jobs in five years because of right, the right. there will be no need for assessments. <laughs> I think that's a bit hyperbolic. Uh, yeah, I, I think this 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 is a uh, we heard a lot a, a lot of concern, but it to me um, maybe I'm old fashioned in some way. I think people cheat, and there are people who wanted to cheat will always find a way to cheat, right? So generative AI or ChatGPT or tools like that just allow some people who inclined to do this type of things uh, additional tools, but that's not forget about the fact that majority of the people do not do that. Uh, we have found this in the literature in our faking research throughout the years that um, the people who cheat um, is or people who fake choose to fake when they are provided opportunity are a small percentage. 
Um, so I, I think there is a lot of value thinking about generative AI. People can use that to practice before they take in the test that create more opportunity for people to engage with something um, and ease their anxiety. Um, it is a good practice to do so. However, I, I think there, like Alana saying, you know, I don't think the world is ending because it, uh, the possibility someone can do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's really a, a good point, Mavis. That you know, most of the candidate pool doesn't try to cheat. Like I, you know, and so yes, there's a new tool that somebody could use to attempt to cheat with, but most people aren't going to use that tool. And those that do, I mean, there's still real open questions about whether or not generative AI actually creates an advantage or a, a good, or whether or not it's an effective tool for cheating on employment tests. Well, I do think it will continue to get better. So yeah, I don't think yeah. we can really put too much yeah, stock I, in that. For sure. I don't think that we can say that it doesn't, right? Like, I don't think that there's, there's no value. Um, and as you said, like, Generative AI technology is going to continue to evolve and it will get better and better at taking tests. So I, I think that's true. I would say, though, controversially, does it matter if they use ChatGPT to help them solve a problem, if they would then use it on the job to help them solve a problem as well? Right, right. It's sort of that's like that old, point. you know, that old faking argument, right? Like if I <laughs> know how to fake good on the test, I can fake good in the job environment too. And people that can fake have, a, it has a positive relationship with job performance. I mean, that's a controversial, but an old, old, you know, old, uh, idea within the, you know, personality measurement field. Yeah. It's almost like saying as someone is wanted to want the job, a motivated, highly motivated candidate that was tech savvy uh, with that digital dexterity, I, I suppose, in some way, be able to perform really well. Maybe they will do that on the job. Um, just like, you know, we, we know when we are trying to hire people in sales roles and we want them to be able to actually be able to engage socially appropriate behaviors, right? So that takes an, an, a craft in some way um, that is kind of associated with the faking behavior and pressure management. And there is a skill in it, in it of itself. You know, I think we've mm -hmm. all had experiences. You can write a good prompt for ChatGPT and you can write a bad prompt for ChatGPT right. and get totally different right. answers. So maybe we should just be placing value on the skill itself of getting that answer to your problem from these mm -hmm. tools rather than saying it's a bad thing and we have to prevent them from using it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I think too, that even though, uh, generative AI is going to evolve and, you know, it will get better at taking tests. So will our ability to detect the use of generative AI. Like you see research already going on, uh, where you can be pretty accurate like in open response essay type questions, you can be pretty accurate on identifying in a group of text whether or not that text was written with the the, the help of generative AI. Um, that doesn't apply to a lot of assessment types, but there's ongoing work in that area too. So, um, you know, our ability to detect the use of generative AI and test responses is going to evolve over time too. Um, but the other thing I'd point out, too, is that, you know, 
there's differences in test types that and then they're resistant Absolutely. to um you know generative ai and when you think about what test types or item types are more resistant to this type of cheating they're the same sorts of test types uh that we went to when unproctored testing started uh, becoming more ubiquitous a decade or more ago um i for those of the audience that have been around long enough to remember that uh when unproctored testing started to become in vogue uh you know it was like the sky was falling to a lot of biopsychologists. How are we ever going to um, exist uh, because people are just going to cheat on our tests? And lo and behold, we found that that wasn't the case. Distributions didn't shift much. Validity didn't decline over time with unproctored testing. And we started developing test types that were less resistant to that type of cheating anyways. So, you know, less reliance on item types that just have a right and wrong answer. Using more interactive uh, types of, of measurement uh, yeah, approaches, uh, you know, capturing trace data, things that are not conventional responses to items. So you can build these resistant uh, uh, measures uh, that are, you know, difficult for different technologies to figure out what the quote unquote right response would be. Um, I think that we're fortunate in Intelligy and in that we have a leg up uh, and because we've been doing this type of research for 20 years, the looking at simulation based measures, looking at, um, you know, interactive assessment content that is not only resistant to generative AI cheating, it's also more engaging to the candidate as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, lots going on in the AI field. I think one thing to point out too, is that, um, the regulatory environment and the compliance environment is dynamic and changing. Uh, we've seen laws passed in, in, in some places in the U.S. already with many more laws uh, going through the legislative process in a bunch of different states. That's going to continue to happen. We've seen that in the EU, there's some uh, proposed regulations that are coming out that are uh, going to impact what organizations can and cannot do with AI, how they need to um, discuss it with participants. Um, so it is a dynamic area of change. And um, at Talogy, uh, you know, we have a group that's focused on on understanding those compliance and uh, ethical related considerations. And, um, you know, it, 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 it will be interesting over the next couple of years to see how um, some of these A AI regulations around the world uh, pan out. I was going to add, um, uh, in Tad, when you're thinking, talking about the trace data, if we can just spend a minute talking sure. about that yeah. for a little mm -hmm. bit, because I'm not sure if the audience really understand what we're talking about. Um, so essentially, trace data is, I think, is almost um, a new way of collecting the data and utilizing the data that we are not able to do 10 years ago, 20 years ago, because we don't have the computing power. We don't have the ability to capture every single point and that being captured and be able to have that computing power to do sophisticated analysis on that. Um, so when we say trace data, it really means instead of understanding whether a candidate do something right or wrong, we're actually um, capturing how they are engaged with uh, a test in, 
uh, within the test environment. So thinking about uh, if you are using PC, uh, maybe it's a number of mouse clicks and they are doing, and when you are doing those, um, maybe you are using a tablet, your, how you interact with the tablet and clicking in different um, area of the screen. So now we are incorporating that into some of our assessment, which is very innovative. And we still doing it based on the theory, right? So using advanced technique like machine learning, we're able to uncover patterns that match with the theory to understand why certain people perform better than the other people. And using that and doing much better modeling of much more uh, data um, instead of like you get um, thinking about um, traditional cognitive ability test, you get one question, one answer, right? Um, instead of doing that, now you get one question, then you have multiple pathway to get to the right answer. And then you are able to leverage in that, how a candidate perform in that situation. And then understanding, you know, statistically, whether that is really useful to predicting job performance. Yeah, I, I mean, it has just so many advantages uh, to assessment uh, applications. So if you think about a, a, a 10 minute cognitive ability, conventional cognitive ability test in 10 minutes, you might get right or wrong responses to 20 items in the same amount of time leveraging trace data, you might get 500 data points on that candidate. And, you know, we were able to leverage machine learning to figure out, okay, of those 500 data points, which ones are construct relevant, which ones reduce group differences. And you're able to come up with a complex scoring set that leads to shorter tests that are fairer and more predictive. I think that the ability to capture trace data as a trend is going to be one of the most powerful and useful uh, trends that we're going to see as just an incredibly important development in the assessment space um, and so many applications for it. And I look forward to all the creative ways the team's going to incorporate you know, capturing trace data into assessment over the years to come. So I'm, I'm conscious that we could talk about emerging trends for the next three hours, but we probably don't want our podcast to last that long. Um, I know there are a few different trends that um, the three of us have brainstormed about that uh, we didn't get to spend as much time on. One of those near and dear to my heart is candidate experience, you know, much more emphasis being placed these days on candidate experience. And it, and it has a lot of implications for talent interventions. And I think it's just so important to design solutions um, with that notion of, you know, a, a, a goal, a critical goal being, uh, does the solution in, improve the relationship between the organization and the participant. That should be a goal in the solutions that you design. But there's a lot that we can talk about related to candidate experience. Another topic that uh, we find ourselves, I, I find myself, you know, engaging with clients a lot about is, uh, you know, a, a recognition or a realization about the importance of assessment um, 
in, in a fair way uh, for candidates, for neurodiverse candidates. Um, I think there's a lot to be said there about how to do it effectively, how to assess candidates fairly. Um, and while we don't have time to go into that now, uh, if that's an interesting trend to, to you, we did do a previous uh, um, podcast episode, episode two was about neurodiversity and assessment. So lots of trends that we didn't get to today. Alana or Mavis, I'm not sure if there are any other that you, other ones that you want to call out briefly before we close, but I'll give you a chance to do that. Um, I, and, and just to reflecting, uh, right before this podcast, I was looking at the trend for the 2023, um, you know, there's a lot of predictions and this is the beginning of year of 2024, obviously. Right. So a lot of trends that we talk about today is a continuations of what has been going on in the past few years. I'm personally very excited to see what the year brings. Uh, there may be new things coming our way, um, you know, so maybe in a year when we reflect, uh, looking at this, hearing back on this episode, I'm curious of what actually stick around. Um, and hopefully we bring some value to the, our audience here. Yeah, I think Mavis brings up a good point. You know, we, we see these trends every year. Some of them stick, some of them don't. Of, of the ones we've talked about, yeah, I think AI, we can safely say, is here to stay and will continue to um, advance. Um, I hope skills-based hiring is something that's here to stay. We'll see how much uptake there is on that. Um, and as we mentioned, you know, some of these kind of trendier competencies or meta competencies, I think there might be some value in some of them, but we need to kind of look at them with a critical lens and think about how can we assess these? How do we define these? How can we validate them? Um, so maybe more mixed feelings on that one. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with everything that the both of you said. Um, I, I would just say I look at a lot of these trends and think that it's a really exciting time to be working in R&D and to be developing assessments. Uh, some of the AI stuff is just fascinating to me. Some of the things that our team is able to innovate and do and take advantage of these trends in a way that, um, you know, brings so much value to our clients and does so in a scientifically credible way. I think that, you know, some of our thought leading uh, research on how the world of work is changing and, uh, you know, what the job designs of the future are going to look like, how leadership is changing over time. Um, all of this work, I think, is really important. And um, I just think there's just so much exciting work related to these trends going on at Talogy that um, I'm just, you know, thrilled in 2024 to be a part of it. And I look forward to seeing where it goes. Um, so with that being said, Alana and Mavis, thank you very much for, for joining the podcast. And I really appreciate, um, as I do every day in our work together, uh, you bear, bringing to bear uh, your insights and, and wisdom on these topics. And uh, hopefully um, it resulted in a podcast that people are going to enjoy listening to. I know that I enjoyed making it with you both. So with that, have a good day. For more information about Talogy, visit Talogy.com. You can follow us at Talogy underscore global on Twitter and on LinkedIn, just type Talogy into the search bar. Thanks for listening to Tune Into Talent. We'd love for you to hit that subscribe button.